Elections are synonymous to democracy. For every vote counting, for the majority to be acknowledged, for those with power running for positions, to have the humility to hand over that power to the people so that they can make the choice. This doesn't seem to be true, though, as far as the Philippines is concerned. Firstly, its concept of democracy was forever tainted by how it was inherited from the colonizing Americans, themselves now struggling with their electoral college system. Secondly, it seems that elections in the Philippines have gone from a desperate scramble to suck up to the Americans to competitions over who could do more flagrant cheating and vote-buying, to murders and massacres becoming the norm, and to the whole thing becoming more about celebrity fanfare and using social media to sell false histories. Welcome back to the third season of Yugto, a podcast where we get mad about Filipino history. My name is Sunny, and for the next six episodes, we'll be revisiting the different presidential elections that have defined the Philippines, as we gear up for the 2022 elections on May 9. It's a tough and upsetting time right now for Filipinos who have a love of history, but we'll find that there have been voting results just as upsetting in the past. This episode, we go back to where it all began, with a rivalry between two well-known Filipino heroes, with this story, we'll understand how corrupt elections with elites getting their way is a tale for as long as the modern notion of the nation has lasted. And we'll understand that someone having to be cheated, slandered, humiliated, even killed for the more powerful party to get what they want is just another painful legacy of ours. This is the first ever presidential election in the Philippines. Andres Bonifacio, versus Emilio Aguinaldo. The year is 1896, and the Philippines is at war. The Filipinos have decided that they have had enough of being treated like second-class citizens in their own land. 300 years of Spanish colonization, abuse, theft, and rape have reached a boiling point. This is a time of revolution, and so heroes emerge left and right. They are the people who provide funds to the guerrilla fighters. They are the people who house fleeing Filipino soldiers and who bandage their wounds. They are people who charge on horseback, bolos in the air, unafraid to lose their lives if it means the freedom of their brothers and sisters. They are the members of an organization that we will call Katipunan for short. Of these heroes, two men rise in the wake of Jose Rizal's death as the faces of the revolution. They were both ardent admirers of Rizal's, but they're both way more game to swing a sword and fire a gun. The first is Andres Bonifacio. Andres Bonifacio is the very spirit of the revolution. His fervency cannot be denied. Indeed, he even founded the Katipunan, and is sort of the president of it. Bonifacio is an everyday Filipino, uneducated, of humble beginnings, and having spent most of his time doing physical labor for the Spanish colonizers. This resonates strongly with the people who run and fight alongside him. The second of these men is Emilio Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo is a general. He is educated, respected, one of the elite class or principalia from his province of Cavite, 
Aguinaldo lays down his comfortable lifestyle to jump on horseback and fight on the revolutionary front. He has become a well-known general, good at winning battles, excellent at strategy, and effortless in spurring his fellow Caviteños to the front. Both Bonifacio and Aguinaldo are wholeheartedly dedicated to the fight and are risking their lives on the daily to win the Philippines its freedom. But both men are also steadily getting pitted against each other as the fights prolong and people begin to wonder if perhaps a change in leadership is in order. At a certain point, the Katipunan splits into two factions. The first is the Magdiwang, consisting of supporters for Bonifacio. Like their idol Bonifacio, this side of the skirmish is mostly every men, and especially men who have been heavily involved in the revolution from the start. The second side is called Magdalo, consisting of men supporting Aguinaldo. Like their leader of choice Aguinaldo, this side mostly consists of Caviteños and Rich Principalia, the main men providing the gold that the revolution needs for guns and resources, and the main men becoming frustrated at how long the fighting is going for and how it is all being conducted, because it's bad for business. It is decided that before anyone should come to blows or assassinations over this issue, a discussion needs to be had. One where the formalization of the leadership and constitution of the Katipunan could be laid to rest. A bunch of stuffy men and soldiers taking time out of the trenches to talk things out. What could go wrong? It is March 1897, and it all comes to a head in a shameful event that would come to be known as the Tejeros Convention. The Magdiwang and Magdalo factions of the Katipunan meet in Cavite to discuss the future of the revolutionary movement and the Katipunan as an organization. Uh, Jacinto Lumbreras presides over the convention, and he acknowledges the highest authority in the room to be Bonifacio. He is the founder, after all, and its current leader. He warrants that respect and authority. And the Magdalo faction hate this, but there is nothing that they can do, for now. The men in the room discuss, over that low Filipino afternoon, what have been our successes, what have been our failures. Aguinaldo has done very well, mounting both defenses and offenses in Cavite. Bonifacio? Not so much lately, military-wise in other regions. There are other heroes who cannot be here today, but they acknowledge their presence and contributions towards the independence of the Philippines. The dithering goes on and on until it reaches the interesting part. Not the present, but the future of the Katipunan. The establishment of the first government of Filipinos for Filipinos. The men lean forward and they stand to attention. Now this is what everyone's been waiting for. What everyone is dying to chime in about. Unsurprisingly, it's Aguinaldo and the Magdalo who want to revise the constitution. They say, sure, the haphazard constitution and code of conduct Bonifacio and the other early Katipuneros made while the revolution was young, still in the shadows, is all well and good. But they are at outright war now. It's time for something new that will better support the future of the nation. Then they slide over their suggested draft for a new constitution to Bonifacio. 
Bonifacio listens, his calloused knuckles terse. Then he looks at the men point blank in the eye, and he rejects the draft. Aguinaldo and his men bristle and accuse him of being biased. They say, as the educated men in the room, they're the ones who know how best to plan the future of the country. Bonifacio and his men hotly fire back. Does not the Katipunan and the revolution have to reject everything Spanish to be true to the ideals that they are fighting for? Then why does this constitution, that the Magdalo faction has suggested, replicate the Spanish governments? Why does it suggest that the Philippines should have a king? And why in the world does it give more powers to the Principalia social class? To the point of saying that only a Principalia with education and money and power can become part of the new government. Aguinaldo and his friends are rightly called out. They sit down, sulking, maybe a bit embarrassed. Back to the drawing board then. And back to yelling and slamming a fist down on tables. Things get especially heated when the Magdalo say that the state of the way the Magdiwang has been running things makes the Philippine army no better than wild animals. The days draw long, and the insults even harsher. The conversations are going around in circles, and everyone is more committed to their own agenda than any kind of resolution. Eventually, Bonifacio himself steps up with his own suggestion. As the founder of the revolution, of course his vision carries weight. And that vision is that the Philippines should move towards a democratic republican government, with elections and everything. This new government would be in the style of the Americas and France and the many other revolutions that the Philippines wants to emulate. This new government would give voice to the voiceless and power to the Filipinos who have suffered for 300 long years. Bonifacio's motion is accepted. He takes over from Lumbrera as chairperson of the discussion. And then on comes a scramble of suggestions to design what the new government will look like. At the very least, of course, the government would need a president and a vice president, no? So why not? Let's start voting there. Bonifacio is nervous about the fact that many provinces are not represented in that room. But he concedes to the pressure of the room, pushing for voting immediately. One has to wonder what is going through Bonifacio's mind at this point. He's not president, but he is the head of the Katipunan. He is the one who makes the speeches, raises the flag, rallies the people. It was his daring of the cedula at Pugadlawin that got the rest of those gathered that night to tear their own cedulas and start the revolution. One might argue that he was and is the heart of the Katipunan. But whether or not he is the heart of the Katipunan, the fact is they are voting in the heart of Cavite. And regardless of how many Filipinos love and idolize him, they are not in the room right now. They are not voting. And guess what? The majority of those preparing to raise their hands now, of course, are men who live in Cavite. And the men who live in Cavite have two things. First, an unwavering loyalty to the person whose military wins were most visible to them, the General Emilio Aguinaldo. Second was a snootiness inherited from the Spanish. 
it's not a secret that they, and maybe even Aguinaldo himself, see Bonifacio as useful to the revolution, but inferior, socially and intellectually, to the Principalia. What? Our lives have been comparatively cushy compared to people like Bonifacio? <laughs> Whatever. When will the fighting end so I don't have to keep giving my money to it to save face? And when or oh when will I be able to take this Bonifacio upstart down a peg? So Bonifacio is nominated for president. Of course. Surely the founder and current head of the Katipunan is the natural choice. But then of course, inevitably, to a few eye rolls, Aguinaldo's name is also put forward. And if it isn't obvious that there are more Magdalo than Magdiwang in the room, then the next moment as hands are counted and looks are exchanged proves this. Aguinaldo handily wins the presidency. Aguinaldo shakes hands to the sound of applause. Nearly 60% of the vote. There are smiles behind mustaches and winks. Boys, we did it. Eyes turn to Bonifacio, wondering what he's feeling at this moment. Will he display that famous temper of his? His chin is set, he is breathing heavily. Then, he swallows his pride. Bonifacio nods, heavily but surely. He also applauds. Reluctantly, his fellows who voted for him clap too. They aren't going to argue if Bonifacio isn't. The next position is Vice President. A man from Bonifacio's faction, Severino de las Alas, proposes that Bonifacio should automatically be Vice President, since he got the second highest number of votes for the presidential vote. Isn't that what they did in the Americas, which they admire so much? Unfortunately, no one seconds de las Alas' motion. He sits down embarrassed, and Bonifacio keeps looking ahead. The nominations push through. Again, Bonifacio is nominated. There is whispering in the room. Perhaps this will be the most decent outcome? Maybe with the figureheads of the Magdalo and Magdiwang factions as president and vice president respectively, the warring factions of the Katipunan will need to kiss and make up. But the Magdalo hands stay down, their faces placid, when the time comes again to count votes for Bonifacio. A Magdiwang, Mariano Trias, gets the position. Now both president and vice president are represented. The snub to Bonifacio, who is still clapping, face terse, eyes narrowed, is unmistakable. A captain general is nominated then a director of war, then finally the position of interior secretary. Bonifacio is nominated for all of these positions. He loses the first two. And for the third one, there are whispers finally among the Magdalo. Are we actually just making up a position to give Bonifacio something? Is this some kind of joke? <laughs> the Filipino peasants will still want him on board, so maybe this is the best recourse. He'll be in the government and will be able to use that face of his, but he will have no decision-making power. He'll be a tiger, but defanged. And so as votes for the position of interior secretary are called, the Magdalo finally raise their hands as Bonifacio's name is called. Bonifacio finally wins something in this room. He grits his teeth, but he smiles anyway. So, this is the power play they're going with? 
he has been outmaneuvered, spawning from an election of his own suggestion. Whatever, he might think to himself. Let's get this over with. Let these Principalia dogs lap it up for now. Let's go back to what's important. What is happening on the street? Saving Filipinos from death. But the Principalia, they have their pride back and they're not about to shut up. Even as he's being called the new Secretary of the Interior, some of the Cavite Principalia stand up and in an air of full concern, protest against Bonifacio having any kind of position at all. And just like this, the historic first election of the Philippines becomes the start of the Filipino history of blatant mudslinging, and worse, the Filipino history of election violence. A man named Guerrero declares that Bonifacio isn't from around here. Surely the revolution is only in Cavite, and its leadership, therefore, must be Caveteño. No one can point out that Guerrero is blatantly ignoring the hundreds of other provinces across the archipelago fighting for their lives, before even harsher words come. One Daniel Terona cements his place in history as being a total asshole by proclaiming that Bonifacio lacked the qualifications, not just to be president, not just to be secretary of the interior, but to be part of the cabinet, Aguinaldo's cabinet. Tirona puffs. He isn't educated. He used to haul cargo around for crying out loud. This, Tirona says, is not what the new Philippines needs or deserves. Finally, 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 Bonifacio draws the line. He has suffered hours of indignations at this point, but Tirona is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Bonifacio stands up, he knocks his chair back, he yells, how dare he? To the face of the founder of the Katipunan, is he serious? This convention would not have happened if Bonifacio didn't call for it. If he and men like him, the laborers with calloused hands and sun-beaten brows, weren't brave enough to take a stand in the first place. Who is Tirona and his ilk, sitting across him with his finely trimmed hair and expensive suit? Who is Aguinaldo, perched now to take his seat on the table with his hands, trained by the best with a sword and a horse's reins, when Bonifacio had to learn it from nothing? Enough is enough is enough. Bonifacio draws a gun in anger. There is a tussle as men grab each other, trying to disarm each other, yelling threats. Then Bonifacio hollers that in his power, as head of the Katipunan, these proceedings were null and void. The Magdalo bristle back, now in full shock. Wasn't Bonifacio the one who called for an election? What a sore loser. What uncouth manners. Bonifacio wraps things up and coldly storms out of the room, the rest of his men staunchly by his side, radiating the same rage and indignation. Bonifacio is still very much a leader. He will make that known, he thinks. Left in the room, Aguinaldo and the Magdalo faction pick up the pieces and revel in their new power. They discuss the future. But also, if Bonifacio is going to be difficult by holding on to the past, perhaps he has outlived his usefulness. He is at least certainly unsettling this new, very Cavite and Principalia-centric government. The rest, as they say, is tragic history. 
The common historical narrative gives too much agency to Aguinaldo as the sole source of Bonifacio's loss. If he were not surrounded by yes-men who were going to benefit greatly from his win, if he were not standing on his home turf, one can assume that he would have been a lot less confident. Nevertheless, if you are Filipino, you know how the story ends. If you are not Filipino, here are the sad details. Bonifacio, the founder of the Filipino Revolution, ends up arrested for his insubordination. He and his brother Procopio are detained. Supposedly, they are being dragged back to Cavite to face the judgment of their peers. Instead, they are brought into the mountains. Depending on what you want to believe, there may have been a skirmish where the two brothers tried to make a run for it. Either way, the bolas came down and ended the lives of Procopio and Andres Bonifacio in brutal fashion. Aguinaldo, the first president of the Philippines, now undeterred, maintained to the end of his days that he didn't know why that happened, and that he had nothing to do with the assassination. And so it was. Andres Bonifacio was killed, his brother murdered alongside him, his wife raped even, all by the same countrymen whose freedom he had dedicated his entire life to. There are multitudes that Aguinaldo's story, the Bonifacio story, and to their rivalry. We will surely revisit these in future episodes. But for now, let's focus on this. In what kind of world would we be living in now if Bonifacio had not been assassinated? Or would it all have played out in exactly the same way? Would Aguinaldo have won anyway, in a fair setting, not surrounded by his fellow Caviteño elites? We will never know. If you are seeking some kind of justice for Bonifacio in wherever unmarked grave he lies in today, at least take comfort in that Aguinaldo eventually loses in the second elections the Philippines ever has, that he is thoroughly humiliated and outboxed by the American colonizers who invaded after the Spanish, and that his national clout never quite recovers. We've allowed this violence and class warfare to continue through the years. And it's the same then as it is now. At the end of the day, the nation suffers. The Philippines suffers now. As ever, classes argue about what is needed for the Philippines. Elites who want to get into power take advantage of the argument and even encourage it via social and mass media. In the end, they only make decisions that benefit their own side. But it is more complex now. If social media existed back then, you bet that the Magdalo, the pro-Aguinaldo group, would have shelled out all the money at their disposal to undermine the Magdiwang and Bonifacio. The less resource-rich and arguably more ethical group would have suffered from this calculated and corrupt effort, and Bonifacio would have still lost that election. We maintain that while parties in the upcoming 2022 presidential election is elite faction versus elite faction, that it is obvious to those willing to look to the lessons of the past to forge the future, who has the better leg to stand on? Who is intent on breaking the cyclic history of violence and misinformation in the Philippines? And who is intent on continuing it?
Thanks for listening. Yugdo is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny, and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for this episode can be found on our website. For more information about the horrors of martial law, listen to Yugdo Season 1, The Murders of Martial Law. For more on how the Marcos campaign uses the digital space to spread anti-historical propaganda, follow me at sunny underscore bunny underscore tan on TikTok. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com. Never forget, never again, vote wisely, and see you soon. <laughs>